Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Kyogen. Kyogen is a Netherlands-based holding company, is the leading global provider of sample-to-insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials. Assay technologies make these biomolecules visible and ready for analysis. Bioinformatics software knowledge bases interpret data to report relevant, actionable insights. Automation solutions tie these together in seamless and cost-effective molecular testing workflows. Kyogen provides these workflows to more than 500,000 customers around the world in molecular diagnostics, human healthcare, applied testing, forensics, veterinary testing and food safety, pharma, pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, and academia, life sciences research. Today's presentation is titled, A Start to Finish Guide to Target Gene Validation Using Quantitative RT-PCR and is being presented by Matthew Muley from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and the NIH Oxford Cambridge Scholars Program. Matthew is a graduate student at the University of Cambridge and the NIH Oxford Cambridge Scholars Program. His current focus is discovering core molecular signatures of the immune response by integrating next-generation sequencing, single-cell transcriptomics, and flow mass cytometry data. Previously, Matthew worked at Tufts University as an undergrad, at the NIH as an RITA fellow, and UNC Chapel Hill Medical School. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen. I'll put them to Matthew at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash target gene validation. That's target gene validation, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Matthew, for the presentation. All right, thanks very much. Um, I'm just gonna jump right into it. So I just wanna do a quick disclaimer that I'm not affiliated with Kyogen or any company or anything like that. I'm a graduate student. I've been um, doing gene validation with qRT-PCR for a long time. So the reason I'm doing this is to just share some knowledge and um, also distribute some resources. So. Everything I'm going to show you at the end is on a GitHub. Um, so all my analysis, all of the Excel spreadsheets, the R documents and everything like that. So anyone can just uh, download them and go through the webinar tutorial basically again. So if you don't retain everything this first time, that's okay. Um, so basically the, the goal here is to allow you to understand how to, to do this. So if you have a, a list of genes, 
that you want to validate their expression levels or their uh, mRNA quantity in cells, uh, and you don't know how to do this, the goal of this tutorial is to just tell you from start to finish, like how would you go through, design an assay, set up the experiment, analyze the results. So, uh, and part of that is gonna be some walkthroughs where I'm gonna show you uh, exactly how I would go about doing this. So typically, you know, but what I'm sort of uh, basing this off is, you know, you, you might have some high throughput data, you might have microarray RNA-seq data, and you have this list of differentially expressed genes, and then maybe you've done some pathway enrichment or other gene set enrichment analysis, and now you have a list of genes or a pathway that you want to validate. Uh, this is a side note, uh, again, as a resource, I, I link to a lot of publications in this, so, um, and because this, this tutorial will be available online, you know, you can go through and, and uh, look at all these, but this is just, I don't, this is outside the scope of this uh, tutorial, but it's an interesting paper on uh, sort of the correlation structure of genes that you should be aware of if you're trying to validate large gene sets. So, the number of genes that you want to validate is going to sort of dictate the experiment design, right? So if you have a handful of genes, it's probably feasible to go ahead and, you know, first look online to see if there's an assay available anywhere. But uh, it, it's probably feasible to, to design the assay yourself, optimize it, and run the experiment. When you get in the level of, you know, 20 or any more than that, uh, genes, you're going to need a more sort of medium, what I would call a medium throughput approach, where there's these plate-based assays or microfluidics assays that allow you to measure many genes simultaneously with QRT-PCR. And these are usually a bit easier overall to, to use because you don't design the assay. So now I'm just going to give a brief overview of QRT-PCR. So it's called a bunch of different things, but Basically, at a high level, what I'm sort of basing this analysis off and, and this tutorial, but obviously the, the sort of overall schema scales to anything. So you have some control cells. Maybe you treated a, a mouse with a drug. You isolated some tissue of interest and extracted mRNA. You're going to make cDNA and add it to a plate with some gene-specific primers and quantify the sort of inverse relationship between the cycle number at which the fluorescence hits some threshold level and the starting amount of cDNA that's specific for your gene target. So I'm gonna go into that in some more detail now. So I think it's, um, it's really helpful to sort of marry these two, sort of you have a conceptual model of what PCR is, which is that you have some target and you have TAC polymerase that is amplifying some a primed specific sequence that you're interested in. And every cycle, your PCR target gene doubles in concentration. So that's good for conceptually, but in order to sort of understand quantitative PCR, it helps to sort of think about it in this sort of more formal framework where we can think about the number of molecules of DNA we have at, um, at the start of the reaction, right? So this is basically the equivalent of the expression level, we'll say, of that, um, that mRNA in that cell population you isolated the RNA from. That is equivalent or is proportional to the, the number you get at, at some cycle will be proportional to that number multiplied by two to the power of whatever cycle number of PCR you're at. So, um, you know, for example, if we are at the third cycle, 
right, our, our, the number of molecules we have at the third cycle here is proportional to the number we had in the beginning multiplied by two to the power of whatever cycle we're at. So uh, this is also making the assumption that every single time we amplify and we go through and we do our PCR reaction, we double the number of molecules. And so that is actually an assumption that you need to validate experimentally, which is tied to the efficiency of the reaction, which I'll go into more in detail uh, in a bit. So when I say, you know, the, the cycle at which we can detect some level of fluorescence, uh, what I'm talking about is this thing, the cycle threshold, right? So for every PCR cycle, you're accumulating target. And at some point, the accumulation of target, which uh, accumulates fluorescence, uh, will reach some level that is above what you said as this threshold level, this baseline level of noise, and then you get uh, amplification above that level at some threshold that you set, and that is the quantification level for that, uh, that specific PCR reaction. And so uh, I'll refer you to this uh, publication that was actually on Bite Size Bio for a little bit more about CT values, but uh, that is what we are actually quantifying. So I'm going to talk now about uh, designing an assay. So this is, um, it's hard to do this without sort of showing you, so I'm just going to kind of show you. But just a, a brief note uh, on should you even design an assay, right? Okay, so if you're going after this WT1 gene, uh, and there's this publication where this consortium has comprehensively gone through and uh, measured every single known assay for this gene and validated the best one for a clinical test, you'd be crazy to try to make another assay for this. Just use the one they validated, right? You know, however, uh, if, if you're after some sort of novel splice variant in uh, a gene, that's not necessarily going to exist in some uh, off-the-shelf assay. So you're probably going to have to design that. So uh, this just, again, is sort of a resource, but what I'm going to do now is sort of walk through uh, an example. Uh, so this is telling you exactly what you need to do. I'm just going to show you. So for, for designing primers for this for your assay, there's really no shortage of primer design. But what I'm going to do is use Primer Blast, which is a NCBI tool. And it sort of integrates Primer 3, which is a very popular primer design algorithm, with blasting that sequence that you pull uh, against the genome to make sure that the primers are specific. So what I'm going to do now is just show you how I would do this. Okay, so let's say we are interested in this gene. Okay, so this is the, the TAP1 gene. Um, what, what, what can we do to sort of uh, learn about it and to see how we're going to design this assay? Okay, so I'm, I'm interested in TAP1. I am going to go to the NCBI gene uh, database, or you can go to the nucleotide database to pull a cDNA sequence. Um, but basically, what you're going to want to do is go down and okay. Let's say you're you're interested in whether or not this gene is uh, expressed in a certain tissue. Well, you can sort of learn a little bit about that just by NCBI's website, where they have this bio project which you can look into. Uh, and this is RNA seq reads. Uh, for, for a given number of samples for, for this gene in all sorts of different human tissues, which is pretty interesting. Uh, so already right there, there's some interesting data you can learn about your gene. But anyway, uh, 
what I want to draw your attention to is, okay, so this is our, our gene sequence and these darker regions here are going to be the, the exons and these light regions in between are the introns. Okay, so if we're designing a qPCR assay, the there's pros and cons to sort of um, every sort of design and, and this is a sort of long conversation, but to sort of give you the gist of it, if we have a uh, assay that amplifies just one single exon, the one issue that can arise unless you extensively validate it is that you could also be amplifying genomic DNA. However, if we expect our PCR product to be, let's say, 150 base pairs, and we have one gene-specific primer here and another one here, then we're going to know that if we get that uh, size target in our PCR reaction, then we know that we're we're not amplifying this genomic region. This is huge, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of nucleotides here. Uh, another thing you can do is I want to draw your attention to these uh, these blue sort of histograms here. You see these are actually RNA seq coverage reads, so they correspond with the consensus cDNA sequence here, which you can see. Um, but also something to keep in mind and something that's kind of interesting is that there are these reads that are in these intron sequences, which uh, may be noise, but they also may be uh, splice variants, which could be interesting and uh, something you might want to look at. So, okay, so let's uh, pretend we're, we want to design an assay for, for this sequence. I can click on it and then click primer blast. Boom, super easy. Okay, so then we're going to get this uh, primer design tool where we can go in and then we, we are on the RefSeq mRNA database. There are all sorts of parameters that will allow you to, to take a look at, but again, one of the main things that I was talking about was whether or not you want to be on an exon-intron junction and the number of mismatches, et cetera. So uh, then all you do is just, you know, get primers. And what this is going to do is find optimal primers at a given TM that you can specify. Uh, oh, sorry, a, a given melt temperature of the assay that you can specify. And um, this sometimes this takes a while, but I've, I've already run it for you. So um, these are the results. So it shows you the location of the, um, the gene-specific primers, and then it gives you the sequences here. So um, yeah, so this is a great, great tool to, to design an assay. Another thing you can do is add you know, a, a probe, okay, so so probe-based assays, and there's similar, uh, you know, design parameters that you want to consider, and you'll also, you'll be, you know, within this software, you can specify that you want to design, you know, a probe as well. There's other software, for example, this um, auto prime, this is, this is another method you can use, and, you know, you can just actually enter in a, a gene symbol uh, which is pretty cool. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind is they're not going to be necessarily the same. So you might get different results with auto prime and different results with, you know, doing this primer three. Um, but really, you know, you just have to pick something. The most important thing is to make sure that it's specific for your sequence and you blast it against the genome, which I like the fact that this does this automatically. Um, okay. So, so that's sort of a brief overview on how I would sort of go about designing primers. So another thing to keep in mind, um, again, this is sort of outside the scope of this presentation, but if you're validating RNA-seq data, 
you might want to run your your reads through a um, a program called Mapsplice. There's a, a couple of programs that do this, but this is sort of the best supported one, which looks for specific novel splice variants in your data, which could be really interesting. <clears throat> um, so evaluating the assay, let's say you've ordered that assay and you have it, came in the mail, all right, now what are you gonna do? Uh, so I'm gonna come back to this conceptual model and mathematical model of PCR. We need to, what I said before about, okay, the, the number of molecules at a, a given cycle is proportional to the number in the beginning times you know, two to the cycle number, but that is assuming that you have 100% efficiency. So you need to validate the fact that every cycle of PCR, your uh, target, doubles. And so the way you're going to do that is uh, basically you can run a sort of standard curve experiment or um, let's just say, well, to back up a little bit, let's just say we run uh, 20 um, nanograms of cDNA, 40 nanograms of cDNA for our target sequence, and 80 nanograms of cDNA, right? And then we add our assay and we do our qPCR reaction and we get these cycle thresholds, CT values, right? Well, what we would expect then is that for each one of these starting concentrations where there was double the amount of starting product, we would expect the cycle at which the fluorescence accumulated beyond that threshold level to go up by one, okay? So that's sort of, you know, that's the sort of conceptual model and you can prove that to yourself with this formal model uh, that the efficiency of the reaction is intrinsically tied to this idea of, you know, every re every um, uh, um, time you double, or for, sorry, for every cycle you are doubling the the target. Okay, so and you can calculate your efficiency by simply you know regressing these points and and building a linear model, and the slope of your line is equivalent to that efficiency. Um, so. You know, an, another way you can do this um, and sort of you kind of kill two birds with one stone actually when you do this is you can create a serial dilution experiment where you do tenfold concentration differences over a wide range of concentrations. And what this will allow you to do is to build that same sort of linear model, um, but you also figure out the limit of detection of your assay. So if you have, you know, all the way down to what you think is maybe 10 copies of your, your starting sequence um, in, the, in the starting reaction, you can sort of know whether or not your assay is able to detect that low starting amount. And so the, the absolute limit of detection is going to be equivalent to the, sort of the, the y-intercept, okay, if we regress the concentration against the CT values, um, and you can sort of prove that to yourself. Um, so another thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to make sure that the temperature that you run the uh, extension step in the PCR uh, matches whatever you know you predict by some algorithm that uh, it says it's going to be right. So when we designed those primers, we said I want uh, the extension step to be 60 degrees. So you could run out um, different annealing temperatures, okay, and you can sort of get a sense of where you have sort of the maximum uh, fluorescence detection. And you can do this with a standard PCR and just um, do a gradient. 
And so this can allow you to, to narrow in, you know, maybe it, you designed it to be 60 degrees, but actually at uh, 64 degrees, it's a much stronger band and you get a single product, okay? Um, so on the note of single products, another thing you're gonna definitely wanna do is before you go into the qPCR, you're probably gonna wanna just take your uh, cDNA you're trying to amplify, add your target assay, run it out on a gel, okay? And so if, if you see these multiple bands, you know right away that your assay, uh, something's not right, right? You're, you're, multiply, you're um, amplifying multiple products. Similarly, you can do a melt curve, okay? So this is, this is something that you just, it's, it's an option on the, the QRT-PCR thermocyclic, right? You just say, do you, it's gonna say, do you wanna run a melt curve? Say yes, okay? And so, so when you're doing those um, efficiency calculations, what you also wanna do is run a melt curve, and what this is gonna do is at the end of the reaction, it's gonna slowly increase the temperature of uh, the actual reaction and what this melt curve plot is sort of the, so it's the negative uh, time derivative of the um, reaction as it's melting. And so you get these peaks, which correspond to the uh, dissipation of fluorescence for a single product if you have a single peak. However, if you have two peaks in this melt curve, that um, you're gonna need to sort of troubleshoot that. And it's, it's possible that you still only have one peak, although it's rare, uh, or, or you, sorry, you only have, you still have one product when you get these multiple peaks. It's rare, it's possible, but um, I'll, I'll sort of refer you to this article um, here if you wanna learn more about why that might happen. Okay, so now just to, to talk briefly about the importance of a control gene. So a control gene or a housekeeping gene, you might hear it called, this is for normalization. Okay, so we're normalizing the expression levels to different you know, amounts of total RNA produced by the cell, different cell numbers, different cell populations. Okay, so if you were to just look at this data here where I have on the x-axis, I have our control group and then, and the, the cells that were treated with drug on the y-axis, I have the CT. If you were to just look at the CT levels for our, let's call interferon gamma, this IFNGSR um, gene of interest. Okay, if you were to just look at the cycle at which the fluorescence crossed that threshold for the control and the drug treated, you would maybe come to the conclusion that, oh wow, you know, the the drug treated samples, you know, they, they reached that cycle threshold at a much earlier stage in PCR, so there's much more target, right? So this is, we would call this, you know, overexpression, right, of this of this uh, target gene relative to the, the control group. Um, and so if you were to, you know, just calculate it using that uh, exponential relationship, and I'm gonna go over this calculation later, you would maybe falsely, you know, incorrectly conclude that this gene is being overexpressed 35-fold. But actually, if you normalize this to the level of the control gene, we see that also some, our control gene also was reduced as um, an effect of our drug treatment. So after we adjust for this, the fold change is zero, okay? So how can this happen? Um, you know, I encourage you to sort of think about that, but one thing to think about is 
you know, it, it's possible that our uh, drug treatment altered the cellular composition of our sample. So there's different cells that are there. So it's not really overexpression or underexpression that we're detecting. We're just detecting different cell populations as a result of our treatment. That's like probably the most common thing you have to think about when you're, anytime you're doing bulk uh, transcriptomics or bulk targeted uh, gene expression assays. Uh, and then, you know, also think about what would happen if the, you know, our housekeeping gene was increased. It's like a good exercise to think about. So how do you select a control gene? Well, okay, so here I'm sort of plotting um, the sort of scientific integrity of three different things you could do as a function of sort of the effort and time needed to do them. So, you know, beta actin is like a commonly used housekeeping or control gene. So let's just use that, you know, that's, that's not going to stand up to review, and I, I would say that's a really not a good idea. Um, Beta-actin can be uh, expressed. Um, it, it is not a good housekeeping gene, let's just say that, necessarily. So you need to find the housekeeping gene that's going to allow you to best assess changes in your genes of interest um, and you're going to need a gene then to use as a control gene that doesn't change really and has low variance as um, as a function of your your control your um, treatment scenario. Okay, so another thing you do is review the literature, and use what others have used in your experimental model. That's that's fine. That's fine to do. So if if someone else has done this exact same thing you're doing and they've shown this system works and their their data makes a lot of sense, then yeah, you can do that. Um, probably the best thing to do is test out a bunch of different potential control genes and pick the one that's the most temporally and biologically stable between these time points in the treatment and control groups and validate um, some experiments using multiple control genes. So that is hard and takes time, but it's actually made a lot easier by what you can do is just order one of these housekeeping gene plates that have primers already lyophilized to the plate and just add your um, sample and master mix and you can get an idea as to which one of these genes has um, is the most stable in your experimental setup and there's a way to there, there's a number of ways to assess this sometimes it might be very obvious you might have huge error bars um, on if you were to just plot this gene as a function of all your different uh, experiments but there's actually a little bit more of a formal way to do this and uh, to, to do this meaning uh, to how to select this gene after you run an experiment like this. And I'll refer you to this um, really good publication here, which, which shows how to do that using this Delta CT method. Uh, okay, so doing the experiment. Okay, so let's say now you've, you've got the assay, you validated it, everything works, you know, now what are you gonna do? Okay, so you have to extract mRNA. This is, you know, it's like baking a cake. You just got to follow the directions. You just got to do it. Um, I strongly recommend, you know, working in a, a room that is sort of, you know, if possible, or a space that you designate at least for that day or that week as your RNA workflow room, and you um, wipe everything down with one of these products like RNA Zap or some sort of RNA eliminator. And you're working quickly and everything is on ice at all times. Um, once you isolate your RNA, you're going to have to do some quality control on it. So 
there's a couple of different things you have to do. One is um, measure the optical density. So this is essential, actually. You got to, because you have to know the concentration of your RNA in order to make your cDNA. Um, but another reason we do this is because, so, you know, nucleic acids ab absorb UV light. And so the amount of absorbance uh, is proportional to their concentration, but it's also a way to tell uh, if you have any residual phenols from your RNA extraction that are contaminating your RNA. And um, that's important to know because it can sort of affect the quality of your results. Um, and there could be PCR inhibitors, for example, in, in that uh, RNA that you're using. So and the um, absorbance at 260 over 280 ratio for RNA is accepted as you know, anything greater than two. A little bit more of a quantitative way to see if your uh, RNA is stable and in good shape is to run an RNA gel. And so this is um, a bioanalyzer uh, run where basically we have the, um, it gives you this RNA integrity number, which is just an algorithm that's calculating effectively, it's, it's the ratio of these peaks of your 28S and um, 18S RNA, if, if you're in a human system, you can get a mouse system or other experimental systems as well. Uh, but this is a really good way to make sure before you spend a lot of time doing a bunch of experiments, if your RNA integrity number is like two, then you're, you know, you're going to want to think about maybe re-isolating RNA if possible. Um, so again, here's a similar information, but I just plotted a couple different RNA integrity numbers, like if it's six or, or seven, you know, it's probably fine, but it sort of depends on your, depends heavily on your, your application. Um, so now you're going to have to synthesize cDNA. Again, this is just, you know, you're, it's like cooking. You just have to follow a recipe, basically. A couple things to note is, I think it's interesting to think about mRNA is really, really rare in an RNA, a given RNA sample, unless you poly-A select it. So you're only getting about due to the capture efficiency of like a, a, a cDNA reverse transcription reaction, you're only getting about 10% of the mRNA that's there. And that's only about 3% of the total RNA that's in a sample. Uh, so most of it's ribosomal RNA. So another thing to think about is if you're using one of these plate-based assays, one of these more, I guess, medium throughput approaches, you're going to want to use whatever cDNA synthesis kits they recommend because sometimes, for example, Kyogen does this, there, there's these controls that are engineered into the cDNA synthesis. Um, another thing to think about is um, having a no RT or a minus RT control in your plate setup, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, also, spike in controls. Again, this is sort of outside the scope of this talk, but um, I want to refer you to this link to um, think about if, you, if you, that's something that you should do. Okay, so now you have everything. How do you actually set this up? What you're going to do, you know, it's going to be probably a 96-well plate, and you're going to add, the first thing you're going to do is add PCR master mix. Um, so if it, you're using a pro-based approach or you're using um, intercalating dyes like CyberGreen, it's going to have some pre-formulated master mix. It's usually at about 2x. And so let's say you want a 25-microliter reaction volume, you're going to add 12.5 microliters to every well. Next thing you're going to add is your gene-specific assays that you have validated. So in this case, I'm just showing, okay, two genes of interest we're quantifying and a control gene. And so 
how much you add really depends. Uh, if you're buying one off the shelf, you know, start with whatever they recommend and kind of go from there. But if you ordered specific primers, you know, the, the, the assay final concentration should be about one micromolar, um, plus or minus a probe if you have that. So in this case, I'm just showing, you know, gene of interest and a control gene. Okay. So after you've added that, you're going to add to your plate your um, your cDNA. And so in this case, I've divided the plate in half. I have a whole half of this plate is devoted to um, a no reverse transcription uh, reverse transcriptase control. And this is basically to to see if we're um, amplifying any genomic DNA, uh, if there's genomic DNA contaminating. So that's an important control to have. And again, I'll, I'll re refer you to that article actually that was um, written for Bite Size Bio that actually goes into a good amount of detail and explains why it's an important control to have. Whether or not you need to do this in every experiment um, uh, is up to you. If it, so it's, um, you know, if after several experiments and several RNA isolations, you see that every single time you run this, you get uh, no CT values, then you're, you're probably fine. But this is probably the uh, best practice for setting up the plate. And now, so now you're going to add your cDNA for each, each sample. And so in this case, I have sample one, sample two, sample three, sample four. Okay. So how much cDNA do I add? It, and another question people have asked me who I've helped out with this is, you know, should I dilute my cDNA? And so, I, you know, it's just, it really just depends, you know, so if it depends on how much you want to add and how easy you want it to be to add it. So basically if you're, you used one microgram of RNA to uh, do your cDNA synthesis. You just have to, you know, um, it, you can go through and read this, but if, you know, you add 80 microliters of water to that um, one microgram per 20 microliters stock, then you would add five microliters to each reaction to get uh, 50 nanograms. Um, so now you're gonna run the thermocycler. You're gonna choose a threshold Often, um, you know, you can just use the uh, automatic threshold that the machine sets. One thing I'll caution you on is occasionally you will have some background noise like this uh, image is showing. And one thing to keep in mind is that you can have sort of background noise from adjacent wells that aren't even amplified. Um, that, that, so, for example, you didn't even have... Um, anything in there okay and th there will be these random sort of spikes sometimes i've seen this and there it's not an actual amplification okay it's just random noise and so you're going to want to eliminate those wells before you calculate the threshold because if you have some weird noise over here uh and it's like this weird wacky curve um you know you're gonna that's going to affect the how this threshold is set um and it, I've never seen a case in which this matters, but some people say that you should use the same threshold for multiple runs. Um, probably certainly the case in sort of a clinical setting, but it's not too important. Okay, so now I'm gonna um, briefly go through sort of an example data analysis. So let's say you ran this experiment, you get the data, what do you do? So in this uh, experiment, this is it's the same thing as I've set up on this plate that you can see here, okay. Um, 
and so I'll, I'll refer you can refer to this and go through this again if it's um, I go too fast but again everything is sort of online um, okay so so I have a I, I'm showing the analysis here um, the way you would do it in Excel and the way you would do it in R and you can go through these and this this R is a in the R analysis there's a, a written tutorial on exactly what you're doing at every step so um, but sort of very briefly you're going to get this output from the instrument um, and it's going to have these CT values okay uh, you're going to average those CT values for each sample in each gene so here I have the control gene for sample one I have three replicates and I'm averaging the values um, for each condition the no drug condition and the treatment condition okay so this is how you would do this in Excel it requires some subsetting and sorting the rows and everything like that um, I also show how you would do this in R it's you know a little bit easier so for example in R you just have to type this uh, it's a couple of lines and it automatically calculates this for you so uh, then you're going to calculate your Delta CT values okay so this goes back to those earlier um, slides I was showing about the so we have we are normalizing against the expression of our housekeeping gene so in this example we have our Delta CT for our no drug samples okay so for this gene for interferon gamma for sample one in our no drug control we calculate the Delta CT as follows right so we have the um, CT value for our gene of interest and we take that and we subtract the expression or the CT value of the control gene for that sample okay and we're just going to do that for every single sample um, and in this analysis what I've done is what I'm showing is the Delta the so-called Delta Delta CT okay so this is the what this is just the log ratio so the fold change in our treatment samples as a function of or um, as a ratio of the expected amount we would see in the control samples okay so what I've done to do that is average the no drug control samples for our two genes in reality you would want to do this on many many more samples um, and the analysis is going to be different if you have a for example match case control okay so let's say you have the mouse at one time point you treat it with a drug you uh, isolate you know tissue again at another time point that would be a match case control in which you wouldn't do this averaging but just for the sake of this analysis I'm averaging the uh, Delta CT values for each gene of interest in the no drug group and then I am taking uh, the log ratio so it's 2 to the minus Delta CT so basically what you have is for the interferon gene, uh, gamma gene for sample 3 in the plus drug group we have the Delta CT value we take that uh, we take 2 to the negative power of that minus the expected um, expression we would see in the non-treated group okay and that's going to give us a full change value 
And so it's two to the minus, this is just, you know, um, log ratio. Okay, so when you are, have the log, you're subtracting. Um, and you do the same for uh, sample three and sample four. And now we can also do this, oops, we can do the same exact calculation for um, the other gene of interest in sample three, which is the plus drug treated, and sample four, which is the plus drug. And now we have fold change um, in the drug treated samples of two genes normalized by the expression of our control gene um, and relative to the non-treated samples. So that is what this calculation is. Now, obviously your calculation is gonna depend on what it is your, um, your experiment is doing, but you know, again, that's how you do, would do this in Excel. And you can see there's a lot of sort of um, referring to different uh, rows. And uh, I think it's a little bit, um, it's okay to do this in Excel if you have maybe two genes, but when you start to get a little bit higher throughput, if you're doing 10 or 20 genes, this becomes really um, easy to make a mistake. So I really recommend using R actually. And I've shown you how to do this exact same stuff in R here, and you can sort of use this as a reference if you're comfortable with it. And then, you know, you would plot the results. So here we have the effect of the treatment relative to the average expression seen in non-treated samples normalized by a control gene of these two genes. And so I'll let you sort of go through that uh, analysis again. And again, everything is going to be online. So, um, yeah, so having gone through the analysis, Again, I'll, I'll refer you to these slides if you want to, to take a look at um, what we've computed. And again, here we have group one versus group two, and we're comparing group two um, to the sort of global average we would see in healthy controls, okay? Uh, another way you could do this would be to have um, matched case control or matched pairs experiment. And so that's going to change the analysis slightly in that you wouldn't do that averaging step. You would just do the delta delta CT of um, time point one versus time point two, for example. Um, so very briefly, sort of medium throughput approaches. Um, these are going to be, again, you have a plate-based assay. All you have to do is add master mix um, and your... Uh, sample cDNA, and you're going to really just run the plate as is. The, these assays are usually pre-optimized. They're ready to go, and you don't have to do any of that um, assay validation. And so it's really good if you have, you know, many samples and, you know, a lot of genes that you're trying to analyze. Um, I would really recommend one of these more medium throughput approaches. And I would also recommend if you're going to do that, it's gonna be a lot more scalable to, to analyze everything in R um, if you're comfortable doing so. So um, again, uh, finally, just a couple of notes on um, my key here. So this is the minimum information that you should publish for um, a, a qPCR experiment. And um, this is just a really good resource. Basically, these are the different parameters that you should show in a publication somewhere, whether it's in the methods or in the supplement. If you do an experiment uh, and they are basically sort of grouped by whether something is essential 
or whether it's recommended that you report this. So this is a good thing to have. And then sort of finally, just some visualization examples. So this is from um, one of my publications and you know, whether or not you're interested in uh, uh, bone marrow transplant, um, it, it's a good resource just because it basically heavily relied on qPCR for this uh, paper. And I have a lot of different visualization and analysis methods that are in the supplement. So I would refer you to that. And so for example, here's um, one of those matched pairs um, experiments. So I have, you know, each person, uh, there's the treated and non-treated samples, and I've calculated the delta-delta CT for each matched pair. I have, you know, another way I've shown the data is to reverse the delta CT axis. So I have negative um, to positive numbers. So just to see the, um, it's, a, it's a sort of clean way to visualize um, fold changes. And I also have interpolated copy number using plasma standards. So it's just another way you can do this uh, that I didn't really go into, but I will refer you to that. So with that, uh, I think I'm just about out of time. So I'll take any questions. Thank you, Matt. That was an excellent presentation. Now, we have a few questions in the audience, but if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears in the right name. So our first question comes from Varen, and they're asking about, does the efficiency depend on the enzyme you're using, or do you need to measure it for each primer? Does it, oh, I see. Yes. So, no, the efficiency is uh, really a function. Well, sort of theoretically, yes, it's a function of the the specific enzyme that is the, the TAC polymerase that's in the reaction. But what you're analyzing when you're analyzing those efficiencies uh, is the efficiency of your assay to um, to be able to amplify that sequence and double it with every cycle of PCR. So that efficiency calculation you would need to do if you have, let's say, you designed an assay for three genes, you would definitely want to do that efficiency calculation for each gene because uh, the efficiency for one PCR reaction using the same enzyme is going to be completely different from another one using that enzyme when the assay itself, meaning those primers, are different. That makes sense. And they have a follow-up question. Um, what do you do if the efficiency is not 100%? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's um, there's there's a couple of things you could do, and um, if it's wildly off, so if you have like fifty percent efficiency, then you just shouldn't use the assay. So that's just you're going to have to kind of go back to the drawing board. Um, let's say you know if the efficiency is less than a hundred percent, one thing you can do, uh, and I've seen this done a couple times, is when you go, or I can show that calculation, um, but when you are actually calculating, um, these, uh, delta, delta CT values or these delta CT values, um, they rely on this, right? The full change value relies on two to the negative delta delta CT. Okay. That's the calculation. If your efficiency is not 100% and you, you can actually go and calculate what the efficiency is, 
using these equations. And basically, let's, you know, you could adjust your uh, full change values to reflect the efficiency of your assay. So in other words, if you have a less than 100% efficiency um, assay, you can adjust this. So you would do instead of 2 to the delta delta CT, you could do, let's say, 1.8 to the delta delta CT. Um, if that makes sense, based on, so, and that, again, is based on whatever the efficiency you calculate is. So it might be 1.75, it might be 2.05. Um, that's actually the most robust way to do it. But commonly, as long as it's within sort of 10% plus or minus, I usually don't see people actually change this um, power when they, when they do the calculation. But I have seen it done before when someone had basically like an 80% efficient assay, they, they adjusted their full change values to reflect that. That doesn't make sense. And because I'd imagine that small amount wouldn't factor in too terribly much. Right, right, absolutely. So we have a question about cDNA. Um, is there a way to check, um, to quality check cDNA? Um, really, there's, uh, that's not really commonly done actually. Um, so you have sort of residual enzyme left over after that cDNA synthesis reaction. And um, there are some, and so basically for qPCR, people don't quantify the, the cDNA. There are ways to quantify cDNA certainly, and you can get creative and use those ways in it, your qPCR reaction. And they're, however, they're usually for like NGS technologies, when you have a, a sort of a cDNA library, you can quantify the um, the quality of the library using different metrics. But usually, that's not done for qPCR. Okay, and then we have a question about the best practice to remove um, genomic DNA from an RNA sample. So, um, some kits recommend that you um, use on-column DNA digestion at room temperature for fifteen minutes. Um, others have other ways of doing it. Um, is this, but is the on-column DNA digestion, is that sufficient to remove most of the genomic DNA? Or do you have some other insight for that? So what I would recommend is in the cDNA, so if the cDNA kit includes a method to remove genomic DNA, so it's usually an enzyme treatment, right? I would do only that. Um, in the past, when I've tried to add on, in addition to the genomic DNA cleanup assay that is part of the cDNA kit, if I've tried to add on the on-column um, DNA treatment um, or genomic DNA contamination removal, it um, I've seen uh, sort of gross differences. And this is just, you know, personally, so you can certainly obviously test this out. But I've seen um, the CT values are affected, um, you know, by one or two if I'm doing multiple um, genomic DNA removal steps. That's my experience. Um, but I would basically encourage you to test it out. What, you know, what you would do is just set up one reaction with the genomic DNA removal plus the on-column removal and just see if your results are affected by that. But yeah, the um, if there's no genomic DNA removal enzyme treatment in the cDNA synthesis uh, kit, 
yeah, I would recommend using one of those uh, on-column digestion methods. Those work quite well. So, yeah. Okay. And then we've got, um, I think it's Guy asks, is there any difference in using linearized plasmid or oligos as standards? So, um, I've used... I've used both and they both work. Um, so basically one thing, yeah, I would, I would definitely, first of all, I would definitely recommend linearizing plasmid as um, the question asker has, has said. So if you have circular DNA, the PCR efficiency is really low, but uh, another thing you can use are these, um, these IDTG blocks, which they might be referring to you as, to as the oligos, but they're, um, it's just a synthetic sequence that uh, is made um, by like IDT, for example, or one of these companies. And they, um, you know, generally they, they work really, really well. I think there's, in my opinion, sort of the, the differences um, doesn't really have to do with the PCR reaction efficiency or anything like that, or how you're able to quantify the reaction. It really has more to do with like the cost of the cost benefit of making and cloning a plasmid yourself if you want to do that, or if you're ordering a plasmid versus ordering one of these um, so-called G blocks, or I think you know these long primers. Basically, uh, it sort of just depends on cost, really, because I think they're both they both work quite well. Okay. And then we've got a question from Zane. Well, actually, two questions. The first question is, what is the difference between CT and CQ? Same thing. Okay. That would be kind of fast. And then the second is, how do you determine threshold? I know that you talked a bit about trying to remove that background noise, but is there, um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. It, it, you know, you basically, so I can go up to that picture I had. Um, what you'll see, um, I would encourage people who are, are interested in this to play around with the threshold that they use and see how it affects the results. So if you were to set a threshold down here, or you were to set a threshold sort of up here, how, how does that affect your, um, your results? And because it has to do with the distances between these points, once you're at this, um, you're, you're at this crossing point, it's not a, the threshold has a very minor effect on your overall results, um, as long as you're in this sort of linear part of the amplification curve here. So if you see that I'm on this straight point of this amplification curve, if you start to set the threshold way up here, then this, um, this fluorescence value is on its sort of peak phase. And so they might not be even across samples. Like this one might be still in its linear phase and this one might be trending to the right a little bit. Okay, so, but overall it's it's really um, usually the auto threshold on most machines sets the threshold well. And then you can kind of just use the same threshold in all of your replicate experiments. And that's usually a, a quite robust way to do things. Um, but yeah, again, you just want to make sure you're in the first part of this sort of linear phase of this amplification curve here where it's not 
on the plateau and you're above the background noise. And that's what the machine is doing automatically. It's finding the optimal solution for that. But, you know, again, the only thing you have to keep in mind is if there's some noise in this plate, like, the, you know, you've you got a little bit of a uh, master mix or something in one of the wells that, you, you know, you didn't even put anything in there and it's this weird spike, that is going to mess up the threshold. So just you want to just only select the wells that actually have any reaction in them when you're setting the threshold. So that's how you would you would go about doing that. But again, I would encourage you to sort of play around with, you know, uh, export one version where you set the threshold up here, let's say, and let's mm -hmm. and export one version where you set it down here. And um, I think you'll find that the results are are quite similar. Okay. Yeah, I played around a bit with setting threshold as well, and found that the auto one tends to work best for me. Yeah. But... Yep. Same here. So. Um, and then we have oh. It's an interesting question. So Clement asks about, um, and maybe you have some insight this, they say sometimes they get uh, PCR efficiency above 100%. Do you have any idea why that might happen? Um, yeah, that, ha that definitely happens uh, all the time. And it's, yeah, it's sort of, I, I have to think about that a little more why, um, why you get, so in terms of the actual, uh, in terms of the actual theory, why you're getting uh, greater than 100% efficiency, I'd have to think about that a little more. But yeah, that's a good thing to Google. <laughs> yeah, it is a good question. Um, and so then we have a question from um, Elsa. They're asking about what is better, the 2100 bioanalyzer or conventional PCR than electrophoresis or qPCR? Whew, that was an awful. Um, or... They rephrase, or they rephrase a little bit later. What is the reason for using the bioanalyzer than conventional PCR, um, than electrophoresis, and also qPCR? Are, are they so? Is this referring to quantifying the, like the bioanal? Is, is that what I heard? The bioanalyzer is that bioanalyzer? The twenty one hundred bioanalyzer. So the twenty one hundred bioanalyzer is more for. Uh, quantification of or it's mm -hmm. not for quantification but it's more for uh, QCing the, the okay. RNA so I you're not going to get any information about the the amount of your gene expression or anything from that um, that is just simply a way to run an RNA gel to see the the fluorescence peaks in before you do any amplification with gene specific primers um, what is the ratio of the 16 or the 18s on uh, 28s ribosomal RNA? And that is a proxy for how degraded that RNA might be. But you get no information about um, uh, quantification of any sort of gene, basically. Okay. And then we have kind of a follow up question to that. Um, what kind of gel would you use to um, check RNA integrity? Uh, so, oh, right. Yeah, I see. So with these, um, like these RNA gels, basically, yeah. uh, the old school way to do it is to just run a gel with your RNA and look at these two bands and say, okay, this one's a little bit brighter than this one and I don't have any weird stuff and I can see the two distinct peaks. Um, the bioanalyzer RNA gel, so this is, this is a product, right? Like this is like an Agilent product that basically they have 
Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's like by far the most commonly used in the field. But basically, it's 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 a microfluidics chip. So you're not actually really. It doesn't even look like a gel. What you're doing is you're pipetting onto these little tiny microfluidic channels um, your sample, and then it goes into a machine and it spits this data out where you get okay. these fluorescence peaks. So yeah, this is like, it looks fancy, but it's really easy to do. And it's a machine does all these calculations for you. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the RNA gel. Yeah. But you could also just run a regular gel and look at the, the two different peaks. That makes sense. Um, and then Audrey asks if you're familiar with the qubit IQ score and if yeah, you can um, t comment a little bit about that for assessing the integrity of your RNA. Yeah, I kind of talked about like, yeah, the, the qubit versus the nanodrop. And I've heard different people say different things. The qubit's really good for, for quantifying. Um, it, you know, you have to sort of think about also the fact that in qPCR, you are you are looking at relative ratios. So as long as you're inputting the same amount at the start of everything, these, um, whether or not you added 50 nanograms or you added 58 nanograms of cDNA to your reactions actually doesn't have any effect on the full change values. So, um, however, these qubit versus nanodrop, like that's really important when you're doing RNA-seq uh, and other NGS technologies. And so um, the qubit can be a little bit more quant, you know, quantitative. It's a, it might have a little bit more of a um, sensitive range for for the the volumes it can detect, you know, actually also in the the bioanalyzer, you also get a, a, a calculation um, for, for the concentration of RNA that you added as well. So there's all sorts of different ways to do it. Um, what I have used in the past is when I'm doing next-gen sequencing and RNA-seq, I will use the, the qubit to, to quantify um, you know, the, the RNA and to quantify the libraries as well as using the bioanalyzer to make sure that the RNA is good quality. So usually for RNA-seq, you have like, okay, we're not even going to run RNA-seq unless the RIN is above seven and we are going to quantify how much is there using the qubit. Okay. That yep. That does make sense. That makes perfect sense. And then I think we have our last question. Um, Oh, sorry, we have two more questions left. So the first one is from um, Zane again, and they're asking about um, doing quantification with intercalating dyes. Uh, they are referring to number quantification. Sorry, I, I think I, I didn't get quite the last part. So so using DNA intercalating dyes, what, what is the, what's the question? Okay, it says, can we do, so I'll read the exact question. Can we do the quantification with intercalating dyes, like copy number rather than relative quantification? Uh, well, with copy number, is that what they're asking? Like if you use plasmid standards? I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you have some gold standard plasmids that you know the copy number of, and there's um, kits that have this, you can do it yourself. So one way to do it, for example, is to order a plasmid and linearize it or order one of those long oligos like IDTG blocks. And basically what you can do is then make a, 
uh, serial dilutions of that stock. And then you can quantify the actual copy number that are in each one of those stocks, you know, for the, the, instead of the concentration in nanograms per microliter, you can, using the uh, molecular weight of the size of the DNA, you can calculate the number of molecules. And then you can check that, you know, the, the best way to check that actually is to use digital PCR. And then you can actually have a real, like, really, really quantitative. So this is what I've done in the past for validating, like, clinical assays is, you know, you, we have these, uh, copy number standards, which we have an error value on. Like we know that it's 10 copies of the target gene plus or minus two uh, based on many, many runs in digital PCR. And so what you can then do is you run a standard curve with every um, qPCR run. And so then you basically you build a, a linear model with that standard curve over uh, the, the CT value versus the range of concentrations you've used. And then you fit your CT values to that linear model. And then that will give you, rather than using full changes, that will give you copy numbers of the um, gene of interest, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to do it. It's really quantitative. Um, so I, I would actually refer you, if you're interested in that, to this paper here. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's what I've done here. Um, and so there's actually a lot of information in that supplement on how I went about doing that. And I put all the experimental information in there, too. So hmm, That's great. Um, and Zane's asked a follow-up question about um, plasmids or standards are applicable to all kinds of samples. Um, well, I, I mean, it, it yeah, it, it, it depends. Yeah. It, it sort of and depends. Then, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like whatever you want to do with the plasmid. Like if you want to show your results in terms of copy number, then use a plasmid. If you want to show your results in terms of full change between two groups, which is what people commonly do, then, yeah, you don't need a, a plasmid. But, it yeah, uh, definitely depends on what you're trying to do. Okay. And then I think our last question comes from Samuel. They're asking about um, cDNA. Um, you said cDNA is not quantified when you're doing um, RT-qPCR, but how do you determine how much cDNA should be added to each RT reaction? Um, sure. So, um, well, yeah, let me step back. So, so cDNA is definitely quantified um, in um, QRT-PCR, that's what we're actually measuring. But um, what I think someone had an earlier question on was whether or not you do any QC quantification on that cDNA. So what I think people might be referring to is, okay, let's say you've made your, and that kind of goes back to this slide, like let's say you've made your, um, you've isolated RNA, okay? And you have your RNA concentration is whatever it is, and you make cDNA using uh, one microgram of RNA, well, it's 1,000 nanograms, okay? And then you um, have that cDNA stock of like 1,000 nanograms per 20 microliters. Let's say that's your final reaction volume. What the, the practice is in the field is to just proceed 
with this PCR reaction as if this, um, as if 100% of the, the RNA is basically cDNA. So in fact, like that's, that's correct. Like your, your, the, the amount you're actually adding is, is less. It's quite a bit less than 50 nanograms. Okay. If you go through this example, because not all of that cDNA is going to be actually amplified. It's a small fraction of it. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of the webinar. So thank you again, Matthew, for a very illuminating presentation and a fantastic sure. discussion. And Great. thanks yeah. also to our sponsor, Kyogen. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to let people know that um, everything that I've shown in the analysis is um, it's on this um, GitHub. So if, if people want to go through and um, take a look at anything, uh, let me just move this. Basically, what they can do is go to this, um, my GitHub site, which is github.com slash mattpm, and click on this QRT-PCR webinar, and everything I've shown uh, is here uh, with uh, R markdown analysis, or you can view it as a Word document or HTML, and also a the PDF of the slide deck I showed if you want to refer to anything. So I just thought I'd mention that that resource is there if, if anyone wants to use it and go through this, the analysis steps again, for example, um, feel, you know, feel free to do so. And we will also post a link to um, Matthew's GitHub site on the webinar page when we post the video as well, just to let everybody know in the audience. Great. So, Thanks again to our sponsor, Kyogen, and finally, thanks to you all, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you enjoyed the webinar and would like to view a video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours or so. And there, you can see the other webinars we've lined up for you on Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Kyogen and Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.